The scriptures place much of religion in godly fear, insomuch that it is often spoken of as the character of those that are truly religious persons, that they tremble at God's word, that they fear before him, that their flesh trembles for fear of him, and that they are afraid of his judgments, that his excellency makes them afraid, and his dread falls upon them, and the like. And a compilation commonly given the saints in Scripture is fearers of God, or they that fear the Lord. And because the fear of God is a great part of true godliness, hence true godliness in general is very commonly called by the name of the fear of God, as everyone knows that knows anything of the Bible. So hope in God and in the promises of his word is often spoken of in the scriptures as a very considerable part of true religion. It is mentioned as one of the three great things of which religion consists. 1 Corinthians 13.13 Hope in the Lord is also frequently mentioned as the character of the saints. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Jeremiah 17.7 Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. Psalm 31.24 Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. And the like in many other places. Religious fear and hope are once and again joined together, as jointly constituting the character of the true saints. Psalm 33.18 Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Psalm 147.11 The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, and those that hope in his mercy. Hope is so great a part of true religion that the apostle says, We are saved by hope. Romans 8.24 And this is spoken of as the helmet of the Christian soldier. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, and the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, which preserves it from being cast away by the storms of this evil world. Hebrews 6.19 Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. It is spoken of as a great fruit and benefit, which true saints receive by Christ's resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The scriptures place religion very much in the affection of love, in love to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and love to the people of God and to mankind. The texts in which this is manifest, both in the Old Testament and New, are innumerable but of this more afterwards. The contrary affection of hatred also as having sin for its object is spoken of in Scripture is no inconsiderable part of true religion. It is spoken of as that by which true religion may be known and distinguished. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And accordingly the saints are called upon to give evidence of their sincerity by this. Psalm 117.10 Ye that love the Lord hate evil. And the psalmist often mentions it as an evidence of his sincerity. 
Psalm 101, 2 and 3. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. Psalm 119, 104. I hate every false way. So verse 128. Again, Psalm 139.21, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? So holy desire, exercised in longings, hungerings, and thirstings after God and holiness, is often mentioned in Scripture as an important part of true religion. Isaiah 26.8 The desire of our soul is to thy name and to thy remembrance of thee. Psalm 27.4 one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, is the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1 and 2, My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Psalm, Psalm 84, 1 and 2, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Psalm 119.20 My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Such a holy desire and thirst of soul is mentioned is one thing which renders or denotes a man truly blessed in the beginning of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this holy thirst is spoken of as a great thing in the condition of a participation of the blessings of eternal life. Revelations 21.6 I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The scripture speaks of holy joy as a great part of true religion, so it is represented in the text. And as an important part of religion, it is often exhorted to and pressed with great earnestness. Psalm 37.4 Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous. And so Psalm 33.1 Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. Matthew 5.12 Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Philippians 3.1 Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. For Thessalonians 5, 16, Rejoice evermore. Psalm 149, 2, Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. This is mentioned among the principal fruits of the Spirit of Grace. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and so on. The psalmist mentions his holy joy as an evidence of his sincerity. Psalm 119.14, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches.
Religious sorrow, mourning, and brokenness of heart are also frequently spoken of as a great part of true religion. These things are often mentioned as distinguishing qualities of the true saints and a great part of their character. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. The Lord hath anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all that mourn. Psalm 61, 1 and 2. This godly sorrow and brokenness of heart is often spoken of not only as a great thing in the distinguishing character of the saints, but as that in them which is peculiarly acceptable and pleasing to God. Psalm 51:17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Isaiah 57:15 Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones chapter 66:2 To this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit Another affection often mentioned is that in the exercise of which much of true religion appears is gratitude, especially as is exercised in thankfulness and praise to God. This being so much spoken of in the book of Psalms and other parts of the Holy Scriptures, I need not mention particular texts. Again, the Holy Scriptures do frequently speak of compassion or mercy as a very great and essential thing in true religion, and so much that good men are in Scripture denominated from hence, and a merciful man and a good man are equivalent terms in Scriptures. Isaiah 57.1 The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away. And the scripture chooses out this quality as that by which, in a peculiar manner, a righteous man is deciphered. Psalm 37.21 The righteous showeth mercy and giveth. In verse 26, he is ever merciful and lendeth. In Proverbs 14.31 He that honoreth the Lord hath mercy on the poor. In Colossians 3.12, Put ye on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, and so on. This is one of those great things by which those who are truly blessed are described by our Savior. Matthew 5.7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And this Christ also speaks of as one of the weightier matters of the law, Matthew 23:23. 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. To the light purpose is that, Micah 6, 8, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. And also that, Hosea 6, verse 6, For I desired mercy, and not sacrifice, which seems to have been a text much delighted in by our Savior, by his manner of citing it once and again. Matthew 9, 13 and 12, 7. 
Zeal is often spoken of also as a very essential part of the religion of true saints. It is spoken of as a great thing Christ had in view and given himself for our redemption. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And this is often spoken of as a great thing wanting in the lukewarm Laodiceans. Revelation 3.15.16 and 19 I have mentioned but a few texts out of an innumerable multitude all over the scripture which place religion very much in the affections. But what has been observed may be sufficient to show that they who would deny that much of true religion lies in the affections and maintain the contrary must throw away what we have been wont to own for our Bible and get some other rule by which to judge of the nature of religion. Number 5. The scriptures do represent true religion as being summarily comprehended in love, the chief of the affections and fountain of all other affections. So our blessed Savior represents the matter in answer to the lawyer who asked him which was the great commandment of the law. Matthew 22, 37-40 Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, which last words signify as much as that these two commandments comprehend all the duty prescribed and the religion taught in the law and the prophets. And the Apostle Paul does from time to time make the same representation of the matter as in Romans 13.8. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. In verse 10, love is a fulfilling of the law. In Galatians 5.14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So likewise in 1 Timothy 1.5, Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, and so on. So the same apostle speaks of love as the greatest thing in religion, and as a vital essence and soul of it, without the greatest knowledge and gifts and the most glaring profession, and everything else which appertains to religion, are vain and worthless, and represents it as a fountain from which proceeds all that is good, in 1 Corinthians 13 throughout. For that which is there rendered charity, in the original, in proper English, is love. Now, although it be true that the love thus spoken of includes the whole of a sincerely benevolent propensity of the soul towards God and man, yet it is evident from what has been before observed that this propensity or inclination of the soul, when insensible and vigorous exercise, becomes affection and is no other than affectionate love. And surely it is such vigorous and fervent love which Christ speaks of as the sum of all religion, when he speaks of loving God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds, and our neighbors as ourselves. If the sum of all that was taught and prescribed in the law and in the prophets. 
Indeed, it cannot be supposed, when this affection of love is here, and in other scriptures spoken of as a sum of all religion, that hereby is meant the act, exclusive of the habit, or that the exercise of the understanding is excluded, which is implied in all reasonable affection. But it is doubtless true, and evident from these scriptures, that the essence of all true religion lies in holy love, and that in this divine affection, and in habitual disposition to it, and that light which is the foundation of it, and those things which are the fruits of it, consists the whole of religion. From, from hence it clearly and certainly appears that great part of true religion consists in the affections. For love is not only one of the affections, but it is the first and chief of the affections, and the fountain of all the affections. From love arises hatred of those things which are contrary to what we love, or which oppose and thwart us in those things that we delight in. And from the various exercises of love and hatred, according to the circumstances of the objects of these affections, as present or absent, certain or uncertain, probable or improbable, arise all those other affections of desire, hope, fear, joy, grief, gratitude, anger, and so on, from a vigorous, affectionate, and fervent love to God will necessarily arise other religious affections. Hence will arise an intense hatred and abhorrence of sin, fear of sin, and a dread of God's displeasure, gratitude to God for His goodness, complacence and joy in God when God is graciously and sensibly present, and grief when He is absent, and a joyful hope when a future enjoyment of God is expected, and fervent zeal for the glory of God. And in like manner, from a fervent love to men will arise all other virtuous affections towards men. It is an evidence that true religion or holiness of heart lies very much in the affection of the heart, that the scriptures place the sin of the heart very much in hardness of heart. This the scriptures do everywhere. It was hardness of heart which excited grief and displeasure in Christ towards the Jews. Mark 3, 5. He, he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. It is from men's having such a heart as this that they treasure up wrath for themselves. Romans 2, 5. After thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The reason given why the house of Israel would not obey God was that they were hard-hearted, Ezekiel 3, 7. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me, for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. The wickedness of that perverse, rebellious generation in the wilderness is ascribed to the hardness of their hearts. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is the people that do always serve in their heart. This is spoken of as what prevented Zedekiah's turning to the Lord, Second Chronicles 36.13. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning to the Lord God of Israel. 
This principle is spoken of is that from whence men are without the fear of God and depart from God's ways. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear? Isaiah 63:17. And men's rejecting Christ and opposing Christianity is laid to this principle. Acts 19:9. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude. God's leaving men to the power of the sin and corruption of the heart is often expressed by God's hardening their hearts. Romans 9.18 Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. John 12.40 He hath blinded their minds and hardened their hearts. And the apostle seems to speak of an evil heart that departs from the living God, and an hard heart is the same thing. Hebrew three eight, harden not your heart is in the provocation. Verses twelve and thirteen, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that great work of God in conversion, which consists in delivering a person from the power of sin and mortifying corruption, is expressed once and again by God's taking away the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11.19 and chapter 36.26 Now by a hard heart is plainly meant an unaffected heart, or a heart not easy to be moved with virtuous affections, like a stone, insensible, stupid, unmoved, and hard to be impressed. Hence a hard heart is called a stony heart, and is opposed to a heart of flesh that has feeling, and is sensibly touched and moved. We read in scripture of a hard heart and a tender heart, and doubtless we are to understand these as contrary the one to the other. But what is a tender heart but a heart which is easily impressed with what ought to affect it? God commends Josiah because his heart was tender, and it is evident by those things which are mentioned as expressions and evidences of this tenderness of heart, that by his heart being tender is meant, his heart being easily moved with religious and pious affection. 2 Kings 22.19 Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, When thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and has rent thy clothes, and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. And this is one thing wherein it is necessary we should become as little children, in order to our entering into the kingdom of God even that we should have our hearts tender and easily affected and moved in spiritual and divine things as little children have in other things. It is very plain in some places in the texts themselves that by hardness of heart is meant a heart void of affection. So to signify the ostrich's being without natural affection to her young, it is said, Job 39.16, she hardeneth her heart against her young ones as though they were not hers. So a person having a heart unaffected in time of danger is expressed by his hardening his heart. Proverbs 
Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Now, therefore, since it is so plain that by a hard heart in Scripture is meant a heart destitute of pious affections, and since also the Scriptures do so frequently place the sin and corruption of the heart in hardness of heart, it is evident that the grace and holiness of the heart, on the contrary, must in a great measure consist in its having pious affections and being easily susceptible of such affection." Divines are generally agreed that sin radically and fundamentally consists in what is negative or privative, having its root and foundation in a privation or lack of holiness. And therefore, undoubtedly, if it be so that sin does very much consist in hardness of heart, and so in the want of pious affections of heart, holiness does consist very much in those pious affections." I am far from supposing that all affections do show a tender heart. Hatred, anger, vainglory, and other selfish and self-exalting affections may greatly prevail in the hardest heart. But yet it is evident that hardness of heart and tenderness of heart are expressions that relate to the affection of the heart, and denote the heart's being susceptible of, or shut up against, certain affections, of which I shall have occasion to speak more afterwards. Upon the whole, I think it clearly and abundantly evident that true religion lies very much in the affections, not that I think these arguments prove that religion in the hearts of the truly godly is ever in exact proportion to the degree of affection and present emotion of the mind, for undoubtedly there is much affection in the true saints which is not spiritual. Their religious affections are often mixed. All is not from grace, but much from nature, and though the affections have not their seed in the body, yet the constitution of the body may very much contribute to the present emotion of the mind, and the degree of religion is rather to be judged of by the fixedness and strength of the habit that is exercised in affection, whereby holy affection is habitual, than by the degree of the present exercise, and the strength of that habit is not always in proportion to outward effects and manifestations, or inward effects in the hurry and vehemence and sudden changes of the course of the thoughts of the mind, but yet it is evident that religion consists so much in affection, is that without holy affection there is no true religion, and no light in the understanding is good which does not produce holy affection in the heart. No habit or principle in the heart is good which has no such exercise, and no external fruit is good which does not proceed from such exercises." Inferences from this doctrine. Having thus considered the evidence of the proposition laid down, I proceed to some inferences. Number one, we may learn how great their error is who are for discarding all religious affections as having nothing solid or substantial in them. There seems to be too much of a disposition this way prevailing in this land at this time, because many who in the late extraordinary season appeared to have great religious affections did not manifest a right temper of mind, and ran into many errors in the time of their affection, in the heat of their zeal, and because the high affections of many seemed to be so soon come to nothing, and some who seemed to be mightily raised and swallowed up with joy and zeal for a while seemed to have returned like the dog to his vomit, 
Hence, religious affections in general are grown out of credit with great numbers, as though true religion did not consist at all in them. Thus, we easily and naturally run from one extreme to another. A little while ago, we were in the other extreme. There was a prevalent disposition to look upon all high religious affections as eminent exercises of true grace, without much inquiring into the nature and source of those affections and the manner in which they arose. If persons did but appear to be indeed very much moved and raised, so as to be full of religious talk, and express themselves with great warmth and earnestness, and to be filled or to be very full, as the phrases were, it was too much of the manner, without further examination, to conclude such persons were full of the Spirit of God and had imminent experience of its gracious influences. This was the extreme which was prevailing three or four years ago. But of late, instead of esteeming and admiring all religious affections without distinction, it is a thing much more prevalent to reject and discard all without distinction. Herein appears the subtlety of Satan. While he saw that affections were much in vogue, knowing that the greater part of the land were not versed in such things, and had not had much experience of great religious affections to enable them to judge well of them, and distinguish between true and false, then he knew he could best play his game by sowing tares amongst the wheat and mingling false affections with the works of God's Spirit. He knew this to be a likely way to delude and eternally ruin many souls and greatly to wound religion in the saints and entangle them in a dreadful wilderness and by and by to bring all religion into disrepute. But now when the ill consequences of these false affections appear, and it becomes very apparent that some of these emotions which made a glaring show, and were by many greatly admired, were in reality nothing, the devil sees it to be for his best interest to go another way to work, and to endeavor to his utmost to propagate and establish a persuasion, that all affections and sensible emotions of the mind and things of religion are nothing at all to be regarded, but are rather to be avoided and carefully guarded against as things of a pernicious tendency. This he knows is a way to bring all religion to a mere lifeless formality, and effectually shut out the power of godliness and everything which is spiritual, and to have all true Christianity turned out of doors. For although to true religion there must indeed be something else besides affection, yet true religion consists so much in the affections that there can be no true religion without them. He who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. And there is no true religion where there is nothing else but affection, so there is no true religion where there is no religious affection. As, on the one hand, there must be light in the understanding as well as in the affected, fervent heart, where there is heat without light, there can be nothing divine or heavenly in that heart. So, on the other hand, when there is a kind of light without heat, a head stored with notions and speculations, with a cold and unaffected heart, there can be nothing divine in that light. That knowledge is no true spiritual knowledge of divine things. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart." 
the reason why men are not affected by such infinitely great, important, glorious, and wonderful things as they often hear and read of in the words of God is undoubtedly because they are blind. If they were not so, it would be impossible and utterly inconsistent with human nature that their heart should be otherwise and strongly impressed and greatly moved by such things. This manner of slighting all religious affections is a way exceedingly to harden the hearts of men, and to encourage them in their stupidity and senselessness, and to keep them in a state of spiritual death as long as they live, and bring them at last to death eternal. The prevailing prejudice against religious affections at this day in the land is apparently of awful effect to harden the hearts of sinners and damp the graces of many of the saints and stun the life and power of religion and preclude the effect of ordinances and hold us down in a state of dullness and apathy. It undoubtedly causes many persons greatly to offend God in entertaining mean and low thoughts of the extraordinary work he has lately wrought in this land. And for persons to despise and cry down all religious affections is a way to shut all religion out of their own hearts and to make a thorough work in ruining their souls. They who condemn high affections in others are certainly not likely to have high affections themselves, and let it be considered that they who have but little religious affection have certainly but little religion, and they who condemn others for their religious affections and have none themselves have no religion. There are false affections and there are true. A man's having much affection does not prove that he has any true religion. But if he has no affection, it proves that he has no true religion. The right way is not to reject all affections, nor to approve all, but to distinguish between affections, approving some and rejecting others, separating between the wheat and the chaff, the gold and the dross, the precious and the vile. Number two. If it be so that true religion lies much in the affections, hence we may infer that such means are to be desired as have much of a tendency to move the affections, such books in such a way of preaching the word and administering ordinances, in such a way of worshipping God in prayer and singing praises as much to be desired, as has a tendency deeply to affect the hearts of those who attend these means. Such a kind of means would formerly have been highly approved of and applauded by the generality of the people of the land as the most excellent and profitable, having the greatest tendency to promote the ends of the means of grace. But the prevailing taste seems of late strangely to be altered. That pathetical manner of praying and preaching which would formerly have been admired and extolled, and that for this reason, because it had such a tendency to move the affections, now in great multitudes immediately excites disgust, and moves no other affections than those of displeasure and contempt. Perhaps formerly, the generality, at least of the common people, were in the extreme of looking too much to an affectionate address and public performances. But now a very great part of the people seem to have gone far into a contrary extreme. Indeed, there may be such means as may have a great tendency to stir up the passions of weak and ignorant persons, and yet have no great tendency to benefit their souls. For though they may have a tendency to excite affections, they may have little or none to excite gracious affections, or any affections tending to grace." 
but undoubtedly if the things of religion and the means used are treated according to their nature and exhibited truly so as tends to convey just apprehensions and the right judgment of them, the more they have a tendency to move the affections the better. Number three, if true religion lies much in the affections, hence we may learn what great cause we have to be ashamed and confounded before God, that we are no more affected with the great things of religion. It appears from what has been said that this arises from our having so little true religion. God has given to mankind affections for the same purpose which he has given all the faculties and principles of the human soul for, that they might be subservient to man's chief end, and that the great business for which God has created him, that is, the business of religion. And yet how common is it among mankind that their affections are much more exercised and engaged in other matters than in religion, in things which concern men's worldly interest, their outward delights, their honor and reputation, and their natural relations. They have their desires eager, their appetites vehement, their love warm and affectionate, their zeal ardent. In these things their hearts are tender and sensible, easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned, very sensibly affected, and greatly engaged, much depressed with grief at losses, and highly raised with joy at worldly successes and prosperity. But how insensible and unmoved are most men about the great things of a another world, how dull are their affections, how heavy and hard their hearts in these matters. Here their love is cold, their desires languid, their zeal low, and their gratitude small. How they can sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his given his infinitely dear Son to be offered up a sacrifice for the sins of men, and of the unparalleled love of the innocent and holy and tender Lamb of God, manifested in his dying agonies, his bloody sweat, his loud and bitter cries and bleeding heart, and all of this for enemies to redeem them from deserved eternal burnings, and to bring to unspeakable and everlasting joy and glory, and yet be so cold and heavy, insensible and regardless. Where are the exercises of our affections proper, if not here? What is it that does more require them, and what can be a fit occasion of their lively and vigorous exercise, if not such an one as this? Can anything be said in our view greater and more important? Anything more wonderful and surprising, or more nearly concerning our interest? Can we suppose a wise creator implanted such principles in the human nature as the affections to be of use to us, and to be exercised on certain proper occasions, but to lie still on such an occasion as this? Can any Christian who believes the truth of these things entertain such thoughts? If we ought ever to exercise our affections at all, then they ought to be exercised about those objects which are most worthy of them. But is there anything which Christians can find in heaven or earth so worthy to be the objects of their admiration and love, their earnest and longing desires, 
their hope and their rejoicing and their fervent zeal is those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which not only are things declared most worthy to affect us, but they are exhibited in the most affecting manner, the glory and beauty of the blessed Jehovah, which is most worthy in itself to be the object of our admiration and love, is there exhibited in the most affecting manner that can be conceived of, as it appears shining in all its luster, in the face of an incarnate, infinitely loving, meek, compassionate, dying Redeemer, all the virtues of the Lamb of God, His humility, patience, meekness, submission, obedience, love, and compassion are exhibited to our view in a manner the most tending to move our affections of any that can be imagined. As they all had their greatest trial and their highest exercise, and so their brightest manifestation, when he was in the most affecting circumstances, even when he was under his last sufferings, those unutterable and unparalleled sufferings he endured from his tender love and pity to us. There also the hateful nature of our sins is manifested in the most affecting manner possible, as we see the dreadful effects of them in what our Redeemer, who undertook to answer for us, suffered for them. And there we have the most affecting manifestation of God's hatred of sin, and His wrath and justice in punishing it, as we see His justice and the strictness and inflexibleness of it, and His wrath and His terribleness in so dreadfully punishing our sins, and one who was infinitely dear to him and loving to us. So has God disposed things in the affair of our redemption, and in his glorious dispensations, revealed to us in the gospel, as though everything were purposely contrived in such a manner as to have the greatest possible tendency to reach our hearts in the most tender part, and move our affections most sensibly and strongly. How great cause if we therefore to be humbled to the dust that we are no more affected. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.